0: I really want to say thank you to you all for coming. We're very aware this is a... The first thing I want to say is that we're very aware this is a a very sensitive and difficult subject to talk about. Um, We don't know most of you in this room. We don't know how you may have been impacted by pregnancy crisis or abortion. Please understand that our heart is not one of condemnation or judgment. That is not our starting point. So we do not want to say anything today that offends or hurts anybody who has a back story. That said, actually we all have a story when it comes to unborn life. We all were once an unborn child and most of us in this room have either been pregnant or had a friend or family member who is pregnant. The first thing I want to do is ask a question. Now, it's a genuine question. Put up your hand, please. Um, Can anyone define pregnancy or what it is to be pregnant? Genuine question. No? (laughs) Oh (laughs) No, you're not allowed to answer. Um, Anybody? Yes, thank you. New life inside of you. New life inside of you. Would anybody disagree with that? Our campaign is called Both Lives Matter. In one sense, it's very simple. We start from the very basic premise that there are at least two lives in existence in every pregnancy. That is what being pregnant means. Our concern is that the world, the society around us, is on a trajectory which is denying the unborn life. Now, we can talk about what personhood means, but we cannot deny that being pregnant means another human being is in existence. Now, unlike the world, who is telling us, particularly us as women, that our... um, pathway our route to freedom and equality is the ability to end the life of our unborn child we believe that because both lives matter there has to be a better way so you'll have seen the seminar title do we believe that both lives matter if we believe that they do We have to come at this conversation about pregnancy crisis and abortion in a different way than the world is telling us to respond. So I'm delighted today to be here with Paul and with Marion. We're going to share this seminar together. Both Lives Matter is a collaborative movement. Many of us were working um, individually uh, in... uh, the different fields that we um, are coming from. I work for Evangelical Alliance Northern Ireland. We were engaging, I was engaging with politicians at the time of the uh, consultation into the potential change of the law in 2015 that the Department of Justice had launched. Um, And they were looking at changing the law based on um, sexual crime or the diagnosis, the fetal diagnosis of a life-limited condition. When we were meeting with legislators, very quickly realised that female legislators weren't speaking up. And then when the men did, in defence of preborn life, they were criticised as old white men who shouldn't have a voice or don't have a say. When I was meeting with female legislators, I realised that they, like many others people maybe here in this room or this tent felt that they didn't want to speak on this issue publicly because if you did, you're put in an anti-woman box or in a religious nutcase box. Now, we are all here as people of faith. Our faith does have a bearing, and Paul will talk more about that, on how we perceive and understand human beings and preborn life. But you do not have to have a faith to defend Preborn life, you do not have to have a faith to say that abortion should never be based on choice alone. There is a real need for accurate information to address the misinformation that is being perpetuated in society about what preborn life is and actually what abortion is and does. There's a lot of inf- misinformation about the law in Northern Ireland and the outworking of that law. There is a concerted campaign from outside of Northern Ireland and from within to change our law on abortion. Now, as people of faith, we have a voice in this arena. And as both lives matter, we are here to help provide you with a voice, help your voice be heard, and engage other members of the community in Northern Ireland who are not from our same faith or cultural background. There are labels. Um. <laughs> Paul knows me well. <laughs> oh, there we go, pointing at you. I don't know why I thought that was going to make any difference. Um, change the screen. Oh dear, disaster already. Um, the commonly used labels of pro life and pro choice we don't think are helpful. Because they're used to um, put us down, they're used to put us in a box, they're used to caricature, they're used actually to create an environment whereby conversation just doesn't happen. It gets very polarised, very nasty. And again, when we were engaging with politicians, church leaders, community leaders, many people just weren't engaging in this subject because they just felt, I don't want to get involved in the nastiness. So we wanted to rehumanise the conversation to re-humanise unborn life. And we wanted to reframe the conversation. We wanted to say, saying no to abortion isn't enough because pregnancy crisis is real. And when a woman faces pregnancy crisis, whatever that crisis may be, we should not judge her, we should not stigmatise her, we should actually enable her to give life to that unborn child that she is carrying. And it should never be that for us as women, we have to choose between our well-being and our child's life. So those labels, pro-life, pro-choice, we want to challenge. And feminist, now I don't know if anybody in this room would um, put that <coughs> label upon themselves. It's quite a contentious label. It, again, um, makes us think of all sorts of caricatures, sort of bra-burning, man-hating, sandal-wearing, sort of that 60s CND-type feminist, or now sort of the aggressive, quite militant... um, Well, there's one phrase I've heard. You know, they're looking to replace patriarchy with matriarchy. Um, We don't want to do that either. We would align ourselves with feminism, with a definition of feminism that says women are equal to men and are entitled to be equal to men in society. But we reject the current definition of feminism, which is that to be pro-woman is to be pro-abortion or pro-choice. Now, pro-choice is a label. Not everybody who is pro-choice will say they are pro-abortion. But there are many people in today's society who actually are becoming very comfortable with campaigning for and saying they are pro-abortion so if we don't stop the trajectory that we are on very soon unborn children will have no rights in law no legal status in law and abortion will be permitted up to birth and actually there are philosophers academics and others who are saying fourth trimester abortion if you follow their logic, is permissible. So we do need to address this issue. So it's reframing the abortion debate here in Northern Ireland and beyond. It's campaigning for life-affirming and life-enabling services. And it's saying that because law shapes culture, we want a culture in line with our law that affirms and enables life. Now I'm going to hand over to Paul. I'm going to ask him to, um, to step up and thank you all for being here again.
1: Thank you, Don. Um, I want to talk about three issues. Just, I know many of you will know me uh, in different capacities, but uh, just so you know where I'm coming from in this, I'm a medic by background, not practising currently, so don't ask me for advice. But I am a, a trained medic and have worked in the NHS and in the Northern Ireland Hospice. Uh, I've also been a pastor. Uh, I also currently then am a theologian and lecturer in Belfast Bible College, um, but also a father and a husband, and a human being. And so I come with all of those hats, um, uh, and I hope that what I say will help you to have clarity. When I'm speaking about this issue, you know, sometimes I can assume that those who identify as Christians know firmly what they believe around these issues and why they believe it, but I don't want to assume that because I've discovered by conversation and talking that with the whole climate that we live in, understandably, I suppose, some of us are quite shaken, questioning, uncertain. So I hope that what I share will help to bring a bit of clarity. I'm going to talk about three issues, and I'm going to talk about each of them both from a a scientific or medical perspective, but then also from a Christian perspective and that's going to be brief. There's much more that could be said and I'm happy to continue that conversation after. We will have time for questions at the end of the seminar as well. Um, But I want to give us some foundations in how we think about three questions. First of all, when does human life begin? Secondly, which humans have a right to life? And then thirdly, how do we respond? And that really will set up for what Marion comes up to speak about. So first of all, when does human life begin? Well, this is a series of pictures of the developing human in the womb. And it starts at day one with a little speck and moves up. This is not life-size either on the screen. Uh, You can see there five millimetres is the scale here. So you can imagine how tiny, even at day 56, this is. But these are the first 56 days of development. Day one, you're talking about a single cell. But interestingly, or at least I find it interesting, that cell is not microscopic. Many of the cells in your body are. You can't see them without a microscope. The egg cell, or ovum, is the largest cell in the human body. And it's as big as a grain of sand. So if you're on the beach this week and you see all of the sand there, each little grain of sand, that's how how small you were when you had your beginning. But you were never microscopic. And so that that cell, the reason it's so big is because it is packed full of energy and resource, for the life that is going to grow out of that cell once fertilization begins. So you were never microscopic, but if you look at these pictures, 56 days, it is a rapid, dramatic process of growth and development. It really is quite remarkable. If we could show it as a video, uh, it's even more remarkable to see because still images like this can almost be misleading. You could look at something like this on day 28 and say, well, I can kind of tell that's some sort of creature, but I've no idea what it is. But by day 56, there's no doubting and no question that this is a developing baby. But the point to understand is that it is a continuous process. There is no day when it becomes something that it was not before, At some point, new organ systems develop, it grows in size, it becomes visible, it becomes something that moves within the mum in a way that she can feel. All of those things, of course, happen, but it is a gradual, continuous process of development from day one. This is a new life that is growing and developing and so people try sometimes to draw lines along here and say well life before that is something other than it is after because now you have the beginnings of the the nervous system or what's going to become the brain or you have the beginning of a heartbeat and so on these are not differences of kind they are differences of degree it's a gradual development it is the same continuous life that has been there from day one And so in answering the question, when does human life begin, there really is only one answer, and it's not just me saying that. This is very, very clear from the science, from the medicine around this, there is only one answer to that question, and it is on day one with fertilization, when the sperm meets with the egg, and the, the DNA from both of those, the genetic program fuses to create something new. That's not an arbitrary point. It's not something that someone just says, well, this, there is genuinely a new beginning at that point. It is clear. It is distinct. It's clearly distinguishable. You can see it if you're able to look under the microscope. You can see what's happening. And what happens on that day is the beginning of a life that is physically and genetically distinct from the mum. This is really important. The father's DNA has merged with the mother's DNA to produce something new, which is no longer a cell of her body. So the cell that this happens within came from her body, but now it is distinct from her, genetically different and physically distinct. Because the cell has a wall around it, it has its own identity as it develops, it has its own separate, distinct identity from her. And within that, and this I find mind-boggling, but our understanding is that this is a genuinely new thing in the truest sense of the word. Because the combination of genetic material that is there has never existed in the history of the world before. Every one of you, unless you're an identical twin, of course, even then you've got differences from your twin. But every one of us is genetically unique, distinctive, and every new life is genuinely new in the history of the world. And it is not just me that is saying this. This is a quotation from one of the most respected uh, books on embryology, on human development, Uh, in the, the scientific community, and I could quote from many, many others, but look at what they say. A new, genetically distinct human organism is formed. There is no question that human life begins at fertilization. No question. That's not up for scientific debate. That is a fact. The question becomes which of those lives, or at what point does that life deserve protection in law? and deserve to be treated as one of us, which is what we'll come on to in a second. Just another quotation that, that kind of explodes one of the myths around this. Sometimes people say, well, we can't treat this developing life in the womb as the same as you or I sitting here, because it's only got the potential to become one of us. In other words, it's, it, you know, if it's not born alive or isn't able to continue through the pregnancy, surely you can't give it the same protection in law, But look at what these writers say, and they're right. It says the developing human embryo is not a potential human being. What would that even mean, they ask? What does it mean to be a potential human being? It is a human being with potential. The potential to develop through the fetal, that's in the womb, the infant, the child, and the adolescent stages. And I find that really powerful because if I asked you well, I can ask you when you started developing. That's day one. But if I ask you when did you stop developing, well, the answer to that is you haven't. Okay? We, we believe and we should believe that there is potential for development throughout life. Yes, physically you might have stopped developing a while ago. So did I. Okay, we're on the downward slope on that side. But emotionally, socially, spiritually, there's potential for lifelong and even eternal development, which is a, a wonderful thing. So, so this is a continuous process that begins at day one. And as Dawn said, that idea of fourth trimester, which means killing newborn children or children in the first months of life if they're not going to live, or ending their lives if they're not, that is where some of the debate is going amongst some of the philosophers. But we're saying, actually, you no, know, life is this continuous process from day one. And so language matters. What we're talking about here really matters. I've said it and I think it's really important that we understand it firmly that from day one this is not part of the mum's body because the way the debate is framed often says my body, my choice. Now I'm not trying to say that it's not within the woman's body. Of course it is. It has an impact on her body. But the the new life itself is not part of her body from day one and that would be wrong to talk about it as if it was. It's not an issue either of reproductive rights. Sometimes that language is used. This is reproductive rights. Once the baby has begun, reproduction has happened, and it's a different kind of right. It is the question of the right to life of this new human life. That's what we're really talking about, and that's where the debate should be. Why do we think, or why do some people think, that life does not have the right to be preserved? Why do we believe it does? And It's not, and and this really (laughs) disturbs me as a a medic whenever I look at some of the evidence or the the material, rather, that is there uh, for women who are considering an abortion. The language that is used around that, even in NHS material, that talks about the pregnancy will be removed. You're not removing the pregnancy. You're removing a new life. The cells clump of cells or the tissue will be removed but this is not tissue being removed as if it is one part of your body it is the whole of another person and we need to be clear about that now from a christian point of view from a biblical point of view what i want to say on each of these points is actually that that certainly on the first two that the biblical position fits perfectly with what we're seeing in science Read in the Psalms, and and you could read much wider around this in Psalm 139. Beautiful, powerful language as the psalmist talks about his development and how God superintended that, was involved in that through, through his formation in the womb. And he doesn't say, you formed the body that I would take on or you formed this clump of cells that would become me. He says, you formed me in my mother's womb. It's a continuous life. That was me, this is me, somehow, even though I can't remember it and I couldn't form memories at that time, it's the same me throughout that journey. Actually, when you go into gospel perspective, it becomes even bigger than that because Paul tells us in Ephesians that God chose his people before creation itself. And here is the sovereign interest of God in each individual, in each unique person, And so God cares about every individual and he cares about them according to what the psalmist is saying throughout their development from the very beginning that's why we should care about it as well because we're talking here about us as human beings as humanity and how we frame this and how we think about the unborn child has got to have something to say about how we think about what it is to be human biblically it's clear to me this is throughout the life process scientifically that's there too but then the question, which humans have a right to life? Now when we talk about human rights, we could do a different kind of seminar and explore how those, that whole concept that human beings have rights emerged out of the Christian worldview, the Christian understanding of human identity and, and human nature. That idea that we are created by God, loved by God, known by God. The idea that we have any rights at all or even responsibilities to each other as well. But the debate around abortion in Northern Ireland at the moment is really focusing in on this question of which of these unborn children have a right to life. So there are relatively few people in the general population currently in Northern Ireland, as far as we can see, who would say, I've no problem with abortion at all. Uh, Under any circumstances, it's fine. Just legalize it throughout pregnancy uh, in any circumstances. So the, the statistics on the screen now looked in 2016 at the Northern Ireland population and when they asked about abortion effectively, the wording was slightly different than this, but effectively on the mother's choice, then 60% of people said probably or definitely not. Okay, now 34% in this survey said yes. So I said relatively few. That's not relatively few, but I meant a minority of people. The majority, it would seem, are saying no. we don't want to go there, at least in this survey. But when you look at the other statistics... That's where things change. Sexual crime, rape or incest, 78% were saying yes, abortion should be allowed. And in cases of abnormality in the baby, 73%, if it may not survive birth, and if it will definitely die at birth, then 81% said, actually, we think abortion should be allowed. So it's these cases, these hard cases where some of the debate is focused and, and, and certainly some of the political will is shifting around uh, those issues. So it's important that we think that through as to what we're saying. Because when it comes to these issues, many of us instinctively would, would feel compassion towards people in those situations, and we should. We should. We should, of course, feel compassion for any woman who has been through the horrific crime of rape. Uh, And especially if she finds herself pregnant, of course, we are bound to feel compassion for her in that situation. We should do. Uh, And likewise, we should feel that for women who find themselves in the situation where a pregnancy that they had wanted and had hopes for, they are now told this child will not survive, or we don't think this child will survive. We should feel compassion. In those situations. But that compassion argument, which is then brought out in the wider debate, that then says, well, the compassionate thing to do is to say, let's end the pregnancy. That's where there's a there's a flaw in, in our logic, in thinking that that's the compassionate response. Because what's really at stake here is saying there are only some lives that are worthy of that protection in law. We want to protect the lives of Children who are not disabled or unborn children who are not disabled or unborn children whose circumstances of conception were, were through a loving relationship but not those who are conceived through rape. That's where we're really, that's what we're really talking about. So is it only after birth that life has value. And this is where there's a lack of clarity in human rights law. It's left to nation states to decide. It would be wrong to say that human rights law says abortion is a right. It doesn't international human rights law. That's left up to nation states to decide. But that's really what we'd be saying if abortion was permissible throughout pregnancy, that life doesn't have that protection until birth. Or is it only wanted unborn lives? When you look into the debate, that's really what it's boiling down to. If this child is wanted by the mother, often the father isn't in the picture at all in that equation. And the question of wider society, do we want the child, isn't there? If the mother wants the child, everything should be done to maintain the pregnancy and preserve that and support her. And we would say, yes, that's right. But if the mother doesn't want to continue, then then it's a no. Is that right? Is that how we think of human life? It's only when it's wanted that it has value. Or is it only viable unborn lives? I'll come back to that question of children who can't survive after birth in a minute. But when we think about this, we need to understand that during development, all the embryo needs is to develop to the mature stage, so this is a life that is growing and developing and under normal, natural circumstances will develop to birth and beyond. All that that baby needs, all that that child needs in the womb is what any of us need. Okay? To keep living, all of us need a suitable environment. For the unborn child, that is the mother's womb. For us, it's oxygen around us, not too cold, not too hot. They need nutrition, we need to eat. And this baby needs nutrition which comes from the mother's body and the absence of injury or disease. In other words, it's the same equation for us as it is for the unborn child. And when you start to say, but the circumstances of conception or the, the, the disability that this child will have or the limitation of its life... It's very hard to then say why you don't apply the same questions to those of us who are sitting here. You see the issue. Because we're saying something fundamental about human life and its value. What about life-limiting conditions? So-called fatal fetal abnormality, but conditions that mean this baby will not live long after birth. How do we respond to that? Well, there's all sorts of questions. People say, well, they can't live independently but who can? Can you live entirely independently of anyone and anything else? We're all part of a society that we need people who grow food, since I don't, some of you might. I need the people to grow the food, I need the shops to sell it so that I can buy it, but we're all part of an interdependent society. We all depend on one another at some level. No one is truly independent. And then secondly, they won't live long after birth, or they can't develop through life. But then who doesn't have a life-limiting condition? To be human is to have a limited lifespan, isn't it? And this is part of our wider question as a society. How do we deal with our own mortality? But at what point, how long do you have to be able to live for your life to be worth living and preserving? And then they will suffer if they're allowed to be born, but who is not born into a world of suffering? And I don't say that to be morbid or to make light of these issues, but to say this is part, again, of the human condition to suffer and to be part of suffering and to cause suffering. So we can't sequester off the issue of the unborn child and say, well, let's make these judgments there without having implications more widely. Because then we're really talking about degrees of the right to life. How independent does a person need to be? How long a life is worth living or permitting? How great a burden of suffering is too much? And this is why if a law was brought in to talk about life-limiting conditions or fatal fetal abnormality, you will very, very soon find yourself in the question of saying, well, what is, how long does that baby have to be able to live? A day? A week? A month? What if it could live for a year, two years, 10 years, 20 years? You see where you're in the area where there's no clear line as to how you define that. You've crossed a line that says something very different about the right to life. And the big question, who judges? Who's going to make these decisions? Big, big questions. Now, from a Christian perspective, all human life is sacred. Our understanding of human life begins with this wonderful, wonderful thing that we are created to be the image of God, created in his image, in his likeness, to reflect his likeness to the world. That's all of us. There are no exceptions to that. Scripture never makes an exception to say on the basis of ability or disability or potential or lack of potential There is no exception. And if you follow it through, in Genesis 5, and I find this remarkable, it begins by talking about Adam being created by God. And it says that God created Adam in his image. And then it says, Adam and Eve had a son. And that son was born in Adam's likeness and image. In other words... What it is to be human is to be descended from human beings. And the image of God transfers down through that pattern of inheritance. You see it again in Genesis 9. After the flood, so this image of God is not ruined by sin, whatever has happened to us, that we still are image bearers. And God says human life is sacred on the basis of that. And why I'm saying about the descent from Adam is this that every single new life is genetically descended from human beings. In other words, it's one of us. It is one of us. There's no biblical basis, I would say, for any other definition of what it is to be human, to be a human being, and therefore to have a sacred right to life. Biblically, that begins at birth. And I just want very briefly then to touch on how we respond. Now, I hope you see that in the scientific bit about when life begins, there is no debate about that. There could be debate about which which lives have a right to life. But I think both for practical reasons, because once you say some lives don't, where does that stop? But certainly for biblical reasons, we need to say every single life. But how do we respond? Well, what is the state's duty to human beings? I think the state has a duty to promote freedom, yes. So someone might say, well, look, that's okay for you to believe that you don't want to have an abortion or you don't want your wife to have an abortion, but what right do you have to say that for other people? Surely it should be left to choice. But we recognize that the state has a duty to limit human freedom for the sake of the rights of other human beings. I don't have the right to kill one of you now because it suits me. And I shouldn't, (laughs) you'll be pleased to hear. So why would I have the right to kill another human being? That right is inalienable. It's not something that I have a right to, and the state should protect that. It should also promote the right to life for all people without exception. And it should provide excellent care, or at least ensure that excellent care is provided for all, which is where both lives matter comes in. And I want to say this very clearly that current Northern Ireland law works on, on abortion. That's not how things are portrayed, but current Northern Ireland law recognises that both lives matter and, and it does allow for the termination of a pregnancy in the extreme situation of the mother's life being an immediate risk. In other words there's a recognition because of course if you're faced with that impossible situation and you're going to lose both lives but you could save the mum's life but to do that you need to end the life of the unborn child that's a horrible situation. It doesn't make the ending of that life right but it makes it the right thing to do in that extreme situation and Northern Ireland law allows for that. So this is a good law that upholds both of these lives and their value and does everything to try and preserve both of those lives, but recognizes there are hard choices in extreme situations. When it comes to the hard cases, very briefly, there are practical challenges, I've touched on that. How would you define what a life-limiting condition is There's no easy solution. We need to understand that. We're not talking about doing something here that will remove the pregnancy or the woman's experience of having been pregnant or the hopes, if it's a a life-limiting condition, that she had for that child until she discovered it would not live. Those hopes are there and the pain of that loss is there. We can't undo that. Sometimes when you hear the way it's described, it's almost as if people think, well, if we allow termination of pregnancy, well, that that would solve that. It's not a solution. So all that we can do is to maximise dignity in that situation. And we can maximise dignity for the parents and for the child. For the parents, I believe the only thing any of us can do as parents is to love our children and nurture them as long as we possibly can. That's what parenthood is about, isn't it? So we need to support people to be able to do that with all of the support that we can give them to give the best care to their child for as long as possible. And to maximise the dignity of the life of the child is to let that child have a natural life for as long as possible until death comes, as any of us would hope for and would want. that means we need to put really good support in place, but that's the principle, I think, that we should be working for and upholding maximized dignity in parenthood and in life for the child. So excellent support is needed. And finally, from a Christian point of view, I was preaching uh, in Terrace Row. I know there's at least one person who was there in in the room. On Sunday, and I was preaching from this passage in, in Mark, and it struck me actually even as I was preaching, never mind in the way what God's Word does that, but Jesus says to his disciples this He says, When he takes a little child, he places the child among them and takes the child in his arms and says, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. The principle in the wider context, Jesus says, Whoever wants to be great, serve the least. And in Jesus' context, little children were very insignificant. They were the least in society. This is the opportunity for us as God's people, whatever way the law goes, whatever way society goes, to say we can serve the least. And that includes increasingly in our society, the unborn child who is seen as being of no value. We will be there to serve them where and when we can. And it includes the mum in a crisis of pregnancy that we want to be there to support. And I think the Lord modelled that in bringing the child to himself and he certainly commanded it. So here's our opportunity to come along and to serve the least, to care for them, to nurture them. I'm going to hand over to Marion, or sorry, to Dawn first. Big pardon, Dawn, can work away.
0: Every pregnancy means that at least two lives are in existence. Paul went through that very clearly. Facts matter, because lives matter, and because lives matter, laws matter. We are not less human because we are sick, because we are disabled, because we are female, because we're from a different ethnicity. We're not going to have time to go into law and human rights law um, the way maybe in other events we can but the fundamental reason for human rights law being put in place was because discrimination, oppression, genocide, the Holocaust came about in World War II because human beings were subcategorised into those who were worthy of living and being protected and those who weren't. The human being's right to life is the fundamental right upon which all other rights are built. Can we now begin to really say, for the sake of human rights, women have a right to end human life, the life of their unborn child? There's a really good little meme, like the little monkeys, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. Um, But it's hear no science, see no science, speak no science. The argument... For abortion actually denies science. It denies the reality of preborn life. Recently, I did a media interview with a lady who said, Well, we all know what an early termination of pregnancy is, it's just blood. Now, I'm sorry, no. A monthly period is just blood. The ending of a pregnancy, as Paul said, is more than blood. It may be very tiny, but there is a human being whose life has been terminated. The law in Northern Ireland is commonly used um, to portray a circumstance situation where women are are, uh, oppressed and discriminated against. Sometimes the law has not worked as it should, but actually that's been a misinterpretation and a misapplication of law. The Offences Against the Person Act recognises unborn human beings as persons. The offence of child destruction recognises unborn human beings as children. The Offence Against the Person Act may be over 100 years old. Well, what did they know 100 years ago? Pre-scans and medical science developments that we no longer know. How did they know that was a human person and, and we deny it? Those laws are good. When GB changed their law, and in 1967 introduced the uh, Abortion Act, Northern Ireland took a different path and decided not to enact the 67 law. That has meant for us 100,000 people, and that's a reasonable, probable, conservative estimate, and all the information is on our website as to how that figure was was come to 100,000 people are alive today directly because of our law laws matter in GB when the law changed we now have come to a place where 50 years later nearly 9 million abortions have occurred there is one termination of pregnancy every three minutes 200 a day 98% are for socio-economic reasons they are not for the cases of the hard situations that we do need to address as a compassionate society but the answer to pregnancy crisis can never be the termination, the denial of unborn human life law matters but we talk about a trinity of law, services and culture so what do we do? If we really genuinely say both lives matter, if we recognize that the law protects life and we all expect the law to protect our lives, what do we do when a woman is facing pregnancy crisis? I'm going to ask Marian up. Marian's a friend, a colleague, and um, I'm delighted that she's here this morning.
2: Hi, everybody. It's great to be here this morning. And I am representing Life Northern Ireland, which is a Christ's pregnancy um, service provider. Uh, We've been working in Northern Ireland since 1980. Um, Just to begin with, which one do you press, (laughs) Paul? Okay, yeah, sorry. I'm as bad as Dawn with technology. Um, It's not good when the two of us are left to our own devices. Um, So you can see here, as Paul has taken you through um, life and when does life begin, and this picture represents for me something quite powerful, which is that we all recognise when life begins, even when we can't actually see that life, even if there's skin and uh, a body um, in between. And I think children actually are really great at showing us when life begins but the problem at the minute is, as we've talked about language we're actually seeing that dehumanising of everybody, everybody involved in the circumstance is being dehumanised at the minute because abortion that's what it does, to be able to settle yourself with abortion, to be able to be okay with it, you've got to dehumanise you've got to detach because otherwise you're faced with the reality so Those who advocate for greater abortion access use words which ignore the humanity of those involved. So we hear things like, I'm having a fetus. Worse than that, those who are advocating for abortion refer to um, the parasite that is in the pregnancy. And you'll notice I'm saying the pregnancy because that's what they say. They talk about the man being an impregnator. And they talk about women being vessels and incubators. Now, I haven't put those words up for any reason. Dawn and I have been um, in interview situations, in talks, where we've actually had women, or a woman that I'm thinking of, in the late stages of pregnancy, using these words to describe the baby that she was carrying at that time. She actually said, nobody should have to be in this condition. Now, she wanted her baby, but that's how detached she was even from her own reality and i don't know about you but not very many people i know when they find out they're pregnant turn right and say guess what i'm having a fetus they say i'm having a baby And actually I was discussing this with my husband last night and we have four young daughters and he was saying to me that the thing that always struck him whenever we were going in and I was going in to deliver each one of them was that straight away the midwives in the maternity units, they're not talking about a fetus whenever you're going into labour. They're getting everything ready, they're checking all the ob's for the mother and for the baby. So language really does matter. Um, Paul talked about the hard cases, as as we refer to them at the minute, and as he said, Northern Ireland is under, quite literally under attack from those who are pushing a pro-abortion agenda. Um, And they are using very emotive, very distressing cases to try and push through a wider liberal uh, abortion law. I want to introduce you to Kathleen Rose here in the picture. She's the daughter of a friend of ours, Tracy, who you may have heard speaking um, from time to time on the radio and on on the TV. Kathleen Rose has Patau syndrome. She's living with Patau syndrome. Uh, Just last week on the radio, I actually heard um, somebody who would describe themselves as pro-abortion, an advocate for abortion, talking about Patau syndrome as being one of the conditions that there should be abortion for. Kathleen Rose is 11 and a half. She'll be 12 in November. Now, that's not to say that in these cases, life is a bunch of roses for Tracy, her eight children. Kathleen Rose is number five, um, off eight. It's not easy. And Kathleen Rose could end up in hospital just because she has a chest infection. And it could be very serious, but that's not the point. The point is that she was given a diagnosis that she... Has this condition, Pati syndrome. It's seen as a life-limiting condition, or a fatal fatal abnormality, which is a term that we reject, and yet she's defined all the odds. She's defined all what the medics thought she would actually achieve. And we believe that it's because right from the very first moment of her birth, she was treated as a child and not a condition. And that's very important for us. We want to look at these very difficult situations, very distressing for parents. But we're very concerned that when people want to show compassion, it's misplaced compassion. We have to engage with the reality of these situations. A condition like Kathleen's is normally diagnosed at 20 weeks. Now, when you think about what Paul said earlier on, and you can see the 56 days and the development already at that stage, you have to imagine, what does that look like to end that life because of a diagnosis of a condition post 20 weeks? We have to have these honest conversations. We've got to be informed And as Dawn said, these hard cases, you know, um, sexual crime, a condition where a child has been diagnosed with um, an illness that they may not survive till birth, or they may live shortly after, or die shortly after birth, or they may, like Kathleen, defy all odds. They account for 2% of all abortions in GB. Now, that's not a minuscule figure. We've got to do something for those parents. We've got to provide a compassionate response. But we don't believe that abortion is that response. Oh, sorry, can you not read at the back? So sorry, it's just a few words from Tracy herself um, about Kathleen. She had defied all the medical experts. Kathleen Rose is not incompatible with life. She is the love of our lives. I think children like Kathleen are such precious jewels within our society because they give love in abundance and they teach us how to love. That's Kathleen's mum, Tracy. So we believe it's time to stand with and for women and pre-born babies. And we believe it's time to offer a better story. So you'll hear the trust women mantra. We actually say it's time to move from trust to truth. Trusting women is too easy. It requires nothing of us as a society. It doesn't require anything of us as communities. But because we believe that both lives matter, in a crisis situation, we need to step up. We need to be ready to care for, to support to enable and empower women and their unborn babies. So Life NI, I'm not sure if you can see that very well in the light there, so I'll just read it out. Um, These are our Pregnancy Matters services. So we have skilled listeners, counselling, housing for homeless pregnant women, community support and practical support. These are um, the services we've been providing since about 1980. Um, I'm delighted as well uh, that our founder, Jean, is in the room. She makes me very nervous because she's right down at the back and I can see her. And also Vivian, um, who was our director um, and, and retired a few years ago. She's also here. It's like talking in front of your teachers. It's terrifying. Um, so um, they're here. And I hope I do it justice by saying that without them, you know, I mean, uh Women, Whenever the 1967 Abortion Act was brought into place in England, life was formed by Jack and Nola Scarsbrick. But um, Jean and Sid recognized that the same services needed to be provided for women in Northern Ireland, because although there's not abortion here, women still face crisis. Women still need help, women still need support, and women still need to be told, you can do this. Sometimes it can be as simple as that, but sometimes it requires a wee bit more. Um, So we would have our accommodation for women who are homeless and pregnant. At the minute, it's packed. It's six one-bedroom apartments, and they're all full at the minute. We have our community floating support workers who go out into the community, and they help... um, Uh, women and their babies. We give upskilling classes. um, We provide baby packs to hospitals. Sometimes there are women who come to the maternity unit. They have nothing to put on their baby. So we'll get a phone call to the office and one of our members of staff will dip a baby pack and send it down to the maternity unit. If people need help and guidance where to go for financial assistance, we can point them in the right right direction. We act as pointers to other um, statutory bodies to help families um, who may be facing a crisis um, and I think the services speak for themselves but also as well Rebecca's story in the little book Lives Matter book you'll read her her story but she said something one night at a, a talk that she was given with us and she said that for her as a teenager she was a she found out she was pregnant not long after she'd finished school um, and as a teenager she said the pregnancy wasn't the crisis it was the lack of support around us now unfortunately Rebecca didn't know about life she always says to me now that she wished she had of because she would know more to come so that's what we want to do we want to spread the word that we're here and we're here to help so if you know of anybody who needs any help or support who is facing a crisis in their pregnancy please take one of the leaflets have a chat with me afterwards I can give you more there will be some at the care uh, table in the resource tent with the number for the office um, and the website and things please take them please spread them that is how we get the word out that there is a charity there that will help and will support we're non-judgmental we're non-directional we're not faith-based we work with everybody from any faith background and none um really what we're here to do is to empower women and to enable them in their pregnancy so the question becomes how can we, you and I, support and enable friends and family facing a crisis pregnancy to choose life? So like I say, there are some of our services. I wish I had longer. I would go into more detail. So come to our next talk, whenever that is. And then you'll hear us talk in, in more detail. I just want to finish briefly, however, in talking about something that's very important at the minute. So we believe that both lives matter. You've heard that there's the charity Life um, in England and in Northern Ireland who's trying to, that are trying to help women in crisis pregnancy situations. The danger at the minute, however, is that as the push for abortion becomes stronger and stronger, and if it's let in, even in a tiny way, it'll open up the door greater. As that happens, the pro-both, as we like to say, because we're four women and four life, so we're pro-both, that voice becomes silenced. And it does happen, it's not me being dramatic, it does happen. For Both Lives Matter, there have been attempts to silence the campaign, right from whenever we tried to start. So we had um, a lecture uh, during the Human Rights Festival, the Belfast Feminist Network tried to get us removed from the Human Rights Festival because they advocate for abortion and they didn't want us to be heard. Um, Also, whenever the campaign was started, uh, Don made slight reference to the hundred thousand figure and encouraged you to go onto the website and have a look at how that was come to. You'll also find there how that was challenged and how it was the challenge was rebutted and our figure was upheld. Um, we also were nominated for an award in the public relations ceremony. That award they tried to stop us from getting it. Um, so anything and any time that we try to promote our voice promote the message, there is an attempt to silence the Both Lives Matter campaign. There's also an attempt to silence life as a charity that is actually trying to help women. Um, So there's what we refer to as the Tampon Tax rise. So in England, uh, our national charity applied for a grant Ticked all the boxes, did everything right, were completely um, uh, you know, uh, the, the right candidates, if you like, for the grant, did everything that was required of them, were awarded the money. The money was to go to setting up accommodation in London for women who were homeless and pregnant, who had chosen to continue with their pregnancy and to birth their babies. And in the Houses of Parliament in Westminster, MPs stood up and demanded that the money be taken off life, simply because it was a pro-life organisation. But we don't see Mary Stopes and BPAS, the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, wanting to set up accommodation for homeless pregnant women. When they talk about choice, they talk about abortion, that's it. When we talk about choice, we talk about accommodation, we talk about enabling and empowering and giving life-affirming choices to women. Um, also, as well, I just skipped down, Rupa Huck, the MP, just when we're talking about misleading information, and again, Paul brought you through the gestational development, the MP stood up in, in Westminster and she said it was absolutely ridiculous that pro-life um, people were saying that uh, fingerprints are, um, a fetus has fingerprints at 23 weeks. That's just ridiculous. And we thought, well, yes, that is ridiculous, because an unborn baby has fingerprints at 11 weeks, not 23 so even the MPs, when they're talking and they're debating in Westminster, they are giving misleading information, and we've got to stand against that. Most recently, just two weeks ago, our um, team and life, thank you, <laughs> um, they were at a road show. Now, we don't show distressing images. We only ever show images of the developing baby. And uh, our team was at Lambeth County Fair. They were doing a little road show in England called Loving Life, and they had these little baby models They set up on the Saturday in Lambeth, they had it Saturday afternoon, they came back on the Sunday and their stall had been removed by the council in Lambeth because of these models. Now these models are the exact size and weight and detail of the unborn baby. This one is at, just check this, 26 weeks gestation, so just two weeks past viability at the minute in the UK. This very, very tiny one, you can come up and see these at the end if you like, this is 12 weeks. These apparently were deemed offensive. So the stall was taken down and all their stuff was dumped um, in behind uh, the cordoned off part of the field at Lambeth and they were told they weren't allowed to be there because they were offensive. So our question is, what happens when abortion becomes the default in somewhere like England and the voices are silenced? If these models aren't allowed, the next time that somebody's friend or relative finds out they're pregnant, will they not be allowed to show their ultrasound scan? Is that where this conversation moves to? So like I said, it's time to move from trust to truth. Oh, sorry. So, yeah, so just to finish, in a jurisdiction where abortion is legalised, The number of abortions does increase. Nine million in the last 50 years in England. The options to life-affirming choices fade. People try to take money off the pro-life charities. The default position in responding to pregnancy crisis becomes abortion. And the pro-both voice is silenced. And we do not want a situation where, as Dawn said earlier, one abortion happens every three minutes in GB. Just sitting here for this hour, 20 abortions will have taken place. Thank you.
0: Um, We have not... (laughs) Um, We have spoken for longer than we intended. I know some people will need to leave to pick up children, um, so I apologise that for you, there won't be an opportunity for question and answers. The three of us, however, are happy to hang about for a bit longer. Um, Please do leave if you need to. But for anybody else... um, we're here for questions if there are any, or you can come speak to us at the end as well. Thank you. Um, if you have got a question, just stick your hand up and we'll start answering those. Um, it doesn't matter if people are leaving. Thank you. Do you have an opinion on the morning after pill? Do we have an opinion on the morning after pill? Um, we don't have an official position. Um, where collaborative movements with different organisations consider it differently. But as a general um, principle, we don't have a problem with family planning um, and contraceptives. Some contraceptives have a a dual effect potentially, and the morning after pill, um, obviously there may not be a pregnancy that has been initiated. There may be, it's a grey area, um, I would not personally take it, but we don't have an an official position that would say it should be um, banned. I think it's about intent. You know, it it could be a prevention of pregnancy. Uh, Any other questions? Thank you. This gentleman's from the Republic. He was talking about the debate coming up to the referendum, and as he said, it was a very articulate pro-life voice and message that was given, but it's hard to counter the My Body, My Rights Um, argument. What I would say is that exit polling from the referendum showed that uh, 48% of people who voted yes voted based on the 2% of abortions, the hard cases. Um, So it shows that although the pro-life the message was very articulate. There was a disconnect with what people were hearing, and there is still a need for us to be upfront about how we address, as a society that wants to show compassion to women in pregnancy crisis, the hard cases—those um, two percent, life-limiting conditions, and sexual crime.
1: So folks, if you're leaving, obviously do please leave, But if we can just keep the the volume down so that folks can hear I know some folks at the front are struggling to hear but j i mean I think on this whole issue you know don't let's not be silent um and that's not just a public campaign, we need that, but it's the conversations that all of you have with all sorts of people don't underestimate the impact of that because the language around this just reaffirming truth as Marion said, I find that. Really powerful to say let 's think about truth here that can win individual hearts i don 't know what way the law is going to go in this land. I think we need to campaign, but whatever way things go, we also need to respond compassionately and and truthfully because you know either way, that voice still needs to be there it 's not that if the law changes then it 's lost, and there 's not work to be done there 'll be even more work to be done you know so uh, i can't I mean, I'm not, Ofe, Dawn's much, much better in that realm of, of the campaign, and we need to do that, but but you, you know, we're all part of that, because the media voice is one thing, the, the poster's one thing, the conversation you have with an individual where you just say with them, well, what do you think about pregnancy, or what was your experience of it, or what do you think about life, and do you understand, have you seen this? Positive messages of actually affirming that. That will resonate with people, they'll see the truth of that, so let's all do that as we can. Um,
0: I think actually, have you got the clicker there? In in line with that, the weekend of the referendum result, I did Sunday sequence, and there was a a minister, a church leader, um, who's originally from the south, and everything that I said, he basically cut me off, and he said, we've already heard all these arguments in the referendum, we don't need to talk about this anymore, so there is a real need As Paul said, you know, some of us are in the privileged position, the responsible position of engaging with legislators and leaders. But actually, it's more important because there's more of you than there are of us. You know, there's three of us. This isn't about us. It's not about both lives matter. It's actually about individuals, it's you talking to friends, family members, and especially if there's a friend of yours who's facing a pregnancy crisis. I am fed up hearing, well, I wouldn't want, you know, well, I, I, I'm pro life, I'm against abortion, but if it was my daughter, I wouldn't want her life ruined. And that's within the church. You know, it is up to each person here to come to terms with this issue and figure out for themselves, do you know I'm not going to be silenced on this, I'm going to advocate for women and unborn children and against a culture which dehumanises those children and women, us as women. Marion has four daughters, I have three. I have four nieces and I have three goddaughters. I refuse to accept a culture for them that says you as a woman are equal to the man beside you, only if you can have a choice to end the life of your unborn child. When does a man ever have to make that decision? You know, a man doesn't have to say, well, to continue with my studies or take this job or this promotion or whatever, I need to end the life of my unborn child. That is not equality. There's so much more we could talk about. I do apologize that we ran over. Hopefully you've got booklets. There weren't quite enough. More will be at the CARE stand tomorrow. I should have said, both lives matter. There are three organizations who founded it. Um, Evangelical Alliance, CARE, and Life. CARE have a stand this week, and they will have booklets. more booklets from tomorrow. Um, thank you all for coming.